I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And today, I'm so thrilled and honored to be joined by Ken Burns, the renowned American filmmaker whose documentaries on the Civil War, the Vietnam War, the Roosevelts, and Jackie Robinson and many other topics have inspired America and done more to educate Americans about the Constitution than any other documentary filmmaker. Ken Burns has a special passion for the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution, uh, and as the 14th Amendment to the Constitution turns 150 this year, and as the Constitution Center is preparing to create America's first gallery devoted to the constitutional legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction, it's a great privilege to talk to Ken Burns about his thoughts about how to tell the story of the Reconstruction Amendments and the constitutional battle for equality. Ken, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Ken Burns, you have said that all of your remarkable documentaries are in some ways uh, teaching about the Constitution. And in your acclaimed Civil War documentary, you emphasize that the Civil War was centrally about race. What was the constitutional story you were trying to tell in the Civil War? Well, I think I've tried to, in all the films, suggest that quite often our dry and sometimes academic approach to the Constitution makes it inaccessible to the average citizen, and that the stories that we tell, the histories uh, that we tell, are a way to sort of remove the difficult and sometimes implacable resistance between the beauty of this document and, um, and then what is often done to it through interpretation. So for me, the Civil War is inevitable because you've tolerated chattel slavery in a country dedicated to human rights, universal human rights, and it plays out on many, many levels. The Constitution is always present. It's the thing, it's the sheet music that everybody's riffing from, whether they're for it, uh, against it, improvising, playing strictly um, the melody. And so I've always been aware of the fact that the way into the Constitution is to tell stories. And so I think, obviously, for the Civil War, it has a great and ennobling purpose which is the liberation of four million uh, American citizens and, most important, their descendants from bondage, particularly in a country which had proclaimed to the world four score and five years before that all men were created equal. But it also sets in motion, I think, uh, amendments to the Constitution that are going to begin to address what had been unaddressed at our founding at the Constitutional Convention uh, that would, in addition to the more famous Bill of Rights, begin to improve and and sharpen our sense of individual freedom. So you have a 13th, which is really quite elemental and basic. And I think what's so interesting that following, not hard on its heels, but reasonably quickly, is the 14th, which to me is the Grand Canyon of amendments uh, to the Constitution, because it's it's doing an awful lot of things, and is going to be playing a role in an awful lot of things 
for as long as we're around. And we are going to be talking about its initial interest in extending um, uh, you know, the privileges of citizenship and due process and equal protection to all citizens, meaning, in essence, the newly freed black men. But we're also at the same time negotiating how you reintroduce the southern states back into the Union, what kind of stick you use to get them to agree to these things, what are the subsequent laws uh, that are going to be passed in support or in sort of opposition to it, and, of course, what is the previous law, and, and I'm thinking mostly of, of the Dred Scott decision that this is going to essentially obliterate Praise the Lord, because I, I rarely meet a constitutional scholar that doesn't think that the absolutely worst decision of the Supreme Court was uh, the, the Dred Scott decision. Mm. Uh, this is the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, and the National Constitution Center is creating America's first gallery telling the story of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. I'm going to ask for some advice, some free advice from the highest source. If you were creating this gallery, which stories of the 14th Amendment would you tell to help bring it to life? I think... The first one would be the citizenship clause, because for me, what we're looking for is, in this more perfect union, is the attempt to extend to all of its citizens um, the idea that they enjoyed the same level of citizenship and the privileges that come with it as anyone else. I think also the really unusual thing is the birthright idea. I mean... This is not across the board in the world among very liberal um, democracies. And the idea that if you were born here, you are an American citizen to which you're entitled all of the, the rights and privileges there under. These are the two great stories for me that are, that are part of this. And the way they play out and interplay and, and conflict and the way in which certain how shall we say, regressive forces that are nearly always present in our national narrative have attempted to subvert uh, the will of that at, at various times. And then, of course, it's really leaving alone um, the later sections, which seem to be rarely come into play, but often uh, form the basis of some important uh, decisions or at least considerations. So it's hard to turn around uh, in jurisprudence, it seems to me, and not somewhere bump into an aspect or a protruding ledge of the 14th Amendment. It's so true that the stories of citizenship, of privileges or immunities and equal protection are so crucial. Uh, how should we use human stories to bring them to life? They're the famous figures like Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and lesser-known figures like Callie House, who was the first African-American woman to campaign for reparations for slavery. What, what, what kind of human stories and figures would you tell to bring the story of Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment to life? Well, you know, Reconstruction has been one of the things I've been most interested in trying to tell. And on several films, we've attempted to integrate it, uh, literally and figuratively, into larger narratives in the history of baseball and the history of jazz, in, um, in, in various other films that we've made. But I'm, I'm committed now to doing something entirely on emancipation, uh, Reconstruction, the post-Reconstruction period leading up to the Great Migration. Wow. And so I think what's really critical in your question is that we remember to tell not just the top-down stories, but the bottom-up stories, and that we don't do it 
merely with the Abraham Lincolns or even um, of figures uh, in um, African-American history uh, who are interesting. We need to actually reach down and remove the the really hard shell of, of celebrity, if you will, of being famous and to return people, those famous people, as well as do the people that we discover, to retur- restore to them their humanness. And, and I'm reminded um, that quite often when we speak about our Constitution, and literally when we talk about debating it at the Supreme Court, we talk about arguments, about making arguments. And I was just reading Richard Powers' um, wonderful new novel, The Overstory, and he has a line in it in which he says, the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And I really felt, in some ways, the vindication of the processes that I've adopted as an individual and as a filmmaker and as a citizen, because I feel it's incumbent upon us to breathe life into these, into this Constitution, into its amendments, into the arguments that attend those discussions by bringing in stories that are recognizable and familiar to us. And so when when people have suggested I do something about the Constitution itself per se, I go, well, I just don't want to focus on, you know, uh, green felt tables with white quill pens sticking out of inkwells and old paintings of powder wigs. I want to talk about Jackie Robinson. I want to talk about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. I want to talk about the agonies and the decisions of Abraham Lincoln. And I, more important than any of that, want to discover those individual disparate stories that have not reached a kind of general level of awareness or, or, or public consciousness and add them to the mix and say, aren't they very much like you and me, and therefore do they not represent my own stake in this Constitution, in this amendment, in this argument, and in this country as a citizen? And that's what floats my boat. That's what gets me excited is, is, is finding, you know, William Blake, the English poet, said you could find the world in a grain of sand. And so what I'm looking for is this sort of notion that, that, that it, 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 it appears obvious in other areas, that the architecture of the atom looks an awful lot like the architecture of the solar system. And if that's true, could we not extend to the particular its ability to beautifully represent the whole. And obviously, this is not a one-to-one correspondence. You can't do this, but you are permitted in storytelling to allow a person or a series of people, perhaps unknown, to stand in as signal and representative examples that breathe life into those arguments and into the cold type on the page. That is extraordinarily exciting and important. Uh, have you found any of these stories yet, or how would you go about finding stories to tell the uh, to, to, to tell the story of, of, of the Fourteenth Amendment and Reconstruction? Well, you know, right, right now is I'm just reading and reading and reading. I'm involved in a couple of other projects that are going to predate it uh, in the production schedule, and they may not seem at first blush. Uh, Germane specifically to a post-Civil War environment and a country struggling to try to figure out if it could, as Dr. King would later say, live out the true meaning of its creed. But I'm doing a biography on Benjamin Franklin in which you can see 
the seeds of all of this happening. And more importantly, in a much larger uh, canvas, I'm doing a history of the American Revolution in which we can meet the individuals, not just patriots, but Tories, those who stayed loyal to Britain, that divided not just the country, the geography, the physicality of the 13 former colonies, but divided families. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's own son remained a Tory and, and just destroyed their family, all of this prefiguring many of the same dramas. You have African Americans held as slaves, a handful of free blacks in the North, and you are trying to figure out, they are trying to figure out, Whose side am I on? England, uh, you know, will be, uh, before the Civil War, is going to outlaw slavery. But nobody knows that. It's just, wh- where do I cast my lot? You have Native Americans, who are, of course, a part, uh, figure into the 14th Amendment, who are trying to figure out, who am I for? And some are supported by the the, the, the British, and, and, and some support uh, the colonists, and still others are sort of keeping their... Uh, powder dry, if you will, and and uh, acknowledging even larger geopolitical forces with regard to the French. So to me, what I'm trying to do is collect a series of, for lack of a better word, these bottom-up characters, north and south, um, black and white and red, uh, loyal and patriotic, and try to begin to assemble an amalgam of several stories, almost like a Russian novel, in which you're learning at several different levels, and then, as I move forward, identify those individuals and characters who are going to be the same in, say, Louisiana at the height of Reconstruction, and uh, some of the people who are beginning to assume positions of leadership, African Americans, in in a Reconstruction America, only to see that Reconstruction collapse with the backroom deal that altered, and you can't make this up, uh, the votes of electors in Florida uh, in, the, uh, in the election of 1776, when Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, won the popular vote, uh, but the presidency was in a backroom deal uh, handed to Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio, the quid pro quo being that all federal troops would disappear from the South, uh, charged with enforcing civil rights, and then, of course, uh, black representatives disappeared, and I mean disappeared like Argentina disappeared, and Jim Crow was brutally imposed, and and white supremacy was reimposed, and the Ku Klux Klan became ascendant. Lynching became a uh, uh, a, a, a method of meeting out justice in quotes, and you have a very complicated period that's going to lead to Plessy versus Ferguson, which is essentially sort of saying, uh uh-uh, uh separate, but uh, equal is okay, and of course, it never was. And it's one of the most critical periods in our entire history. It's issuing a lot, both positively and in a reactive sense, to the 14th Amendment. So all of this has got to be grist for my mill. But I hope at the end of the day, when you and I are having a conversation of the film that we did make, Hmm. that I will be able to say, here or three dozen people I don't think you've heard of before, and that they help breathe life and give shape and form and body to these sometimes abstract arguments. That's so exciting. Uh, 
um, and as you say, the Supreme Court is part of the story too. How would you tell the story of Plessy and of the slaughterhouse decisions, which eviscerated the Privileges or Immunities Clause and Dred Scott? You tell the story of Dred Scott and Plessy, or are there other ways of bringing those Supreme Court cases to life? You know, that is a really good question. I, I feel like so far, here so far in my professional life, I've tended to permit the activities of the Supreme Court to be off camera, mm-hmm. whether it's in the decision most recently about the Pentagon Papers, uh, whether it is in the Civil War series of 28 years ago about the Dred Scott decision, whether it is in various times that we've mentioned it, um, Plessy versus Ferguson, or much later on, the three or four times we focused on a backstory to getting to the Brown versus Board of Education, most notably in jazz, where we introduce you to a young uh, freshman at the University of Texas named Charlie Black, who goes to the Driscoll Hotel and watches Louis Armstrong. He just he doesn't know who Louis Armstrong is, and he's just there because he thinks he might meet girls to dance with, and suddenly. Armstrong starts playing, and he realizes he's never seen genius before in the person of a black person. A black person was always a servant to him, and it set in him a question of what was the nature of these people and where they came from and what they could be doing. And later on, Charlie Black would become a distinguished professor of constitutional law who would join the team uh, that included Thurgood Marshall that would argue successfully uh, before the United States Supreme Court in 1954 that segregating school children on the basis of skin color was unconstitutional. And what, what we did in that very short few paragraphs was personalize it. And I hope that maybe as we proceed in these subjects, whether it is Franklin uh, to a lesser extent, but the American Revolution and, and uh, the, the period emancipation to exodus, as we're calling it, that we'll be able to um, engage those in that kind of intimate way that the Charlie Black story represents. And we are also, I might add, uh, doing two, working on two other projects, um, one is a history of the LBJ presidency with a focus on civil rights, not the Vietnam War. And the other is a history of crime and punishment in the United States. You know, we had attempted, we desired at the beginning of our republic to sort of shed the specific gravity of the old forms of Europe and not have the almshouses and the debtors' prisons and the poor houses that made uh, a sham of our declaration of universal human rights and that we would invent a progressive, modern penitentiary system. Well, we all know that didn't work out too well and that we have 4% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. And so asking the questions as you go from those grade school pillories and stocks uh, to complicated notions of educating uh, prisoners in prison and what we owe them and uh, how what obligations we have towards rehabilitation become an amazing arc uh, and another way to see the whole 250 years of American history. So lots of this project, I hope that we can take the abstractness or the seeming abstractness of, of the Constitution, its amendments, and the arguments that attend them, and, and adding the human dimension to it, make them parts of stories that make people want to pay attention and not sort of, for most Americans, sort of turn off at the, at the powdered wig, white quill, pen, and green felt table aspect of it, and also the didactic and sometimes academic nature of the arguments, even though, of course, we're talking about 
essentially minimal words. Even the long 14th Amendment is itself relatively short, but boy, every phrase, every clause has something that literally affects your life. I mean, many Americans tell me, well, the only thing that affects my life is the post office that from the federal government. Is it okay? Uh, you, you're going to have to look around a little bit more carefully than that. And I think our films will try to add people to these uh, ideas and concepts to, to make them, I hope, come alive. It's so true that every word matters. How do we, the Constitution Center, tell the story of a founder like John Bingham, who's selecting specific uh, nouns and adverbs in the Privileges or Immunities Clause to signal his belief that all citizens are entitled to basic natural rights? But this is very wonky and inaccessible stuff. How, how, how do we bring that textual uh, specificity yeah, I, to life? I, I think you guys do it so, so well. And the one thing is to say, look... There is a guy named John Bingham, and this is his story, and this is how he arrives at this moment, and this is what he's doing. And while it may seem, you know, arcane, it's part of the scaffolding and false work, you might say, of any building construction, look at the edifice that he's building. Look at the kind of things that he's done. And it becomes particularly critical now as, as facts and even laws and institutions are being challenged at every corner that we learn how to tell the stories, to put flesh and bones onto these abstract ideas and just say, these are real people like you and me. These are real people who struggled with these issues. These are real people who believe this out of these experiences, and they did this. And then I think the jargon, our concerns about uh, this, you know, going over too many people's head disappears, and you find yourself looking at a group of school kids, young kids, and I know you see this every day, who are on fire Mm. because of the power of the ideas combined with the stories. And I think that's what happened, that, you know, it's it's what, you know, uh, Richard um, Powers uh, said in the overstory, the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And so I think for us, it's incumbent upon us to tell a good story. I mean, look, I I think Americans, our founders knew it in their bones. Our Constitution is still the shortest Constitution in the world, four pieces of parchment written at the end of the 18th century that's able to adjudicate most every problem, thorny problem in this, the new 21st century. That's that's a pretty um, streamlined piece of machinery. The power of ideas animated by stories. It's absolutely thrilling the way you put it. And I'm going to ask a narrative question. Uh, The LBJ and civil rights documentary, the uh, crime and punishment documentary, all raise these profound, agonizing questions of race. Is the arc of the constitutional story of equality a positive one that bends upward, or is it a tragic one, or is it some combination? How do we leave our school kids as we try to tell them about whether or not America is fulfilling its promise of equality? Well, I think it's, of course, as in all things, a combination of the two. Um, We have for long uh, been susceptible to the kind of rosy-tinted morning again in America kind of vision of everything as as just a, a rising road. And, and for the most part, our story has been that, but it's not that entirely. And for every time we've taken steps forward, say in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, we've taken steps backwards in most recent years where some of the most important teeth 
in in that law, in that act, have been extracted in order to continue to mollify those regressive forces that would keep us um, a country divided by race. Uh, we have tried to do things at times. We fought a civil war. We lost now, we believe, 750,000 people over the question of slavery in America. And and now we're distracted by ideas of, of monuments and, and, and things like that when our goal must be to make that more perfect union. And we won't do it by making some people... Um, more of more of a citizen than others, and so I think we've got to just be honest. Um, this is not uniquely Americans. Some of the aspects of it are, of course. This is a human story. You know, people are so wedded to the idea that history repeats itself. It does not. I know of nothing that is exactly the same as what went before. And we also say, in order to sort of remind people of the urgency of knowing what took place in our past, which is a commendable task. We say that we're all condemned to repeat what we don't remember. That's not true either. I I understand the impulse, and it's a noble one. I go back to Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament, which says, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And what that says, or what that suggests, to me, is that human nature never changes, and that human nature superimposes itself over the seemingly random chaos of events, and I say seemingly only because we may not have the faculty to apprehend a bigger pattern that our sometimes our faith and our art and our reason and literature might suggest, but we superimpose that human nature, and we see themes and motifs and recurring uh, kind of uh, cycles of things. And Mark Twain is famously supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Hmm. I've never finished a project, Jeff, where I haven't lifted my head out firmly and, and completely focused only on that period and suddenly realized the way in which it rhymed with our present moment. And every film that I've made, going back to my first film on the Brooklyn Bridge, up to the most recent on the Vietnam War, I could give you a list of the ways in which, you know, it rhymed with that moment that would seem like we had, we were trying to make a contemporary film, but we weren't. We are talking about human nature, and we will find the same kind of qualities of generosity and greed, of purience and puritanism, of, of all of these kinds of conflicts that, that aren't just between people that make wars, but also within people that make complex psychologies. And it's really important for the storyteller to mix the amount of outer conflict, the driving engine of drama and storytelling, with inner conflict, because we are all conflicted. And I think we, 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 we feel that the best stories are the ones that are honest about the fact that we are not one thing or the other, that no villain is wholly bad and no hero is perfect, and that in that spirit of just representation, we have the opportunity to not only tell good stories, but bring in their wake all of these complex ideas that might themselves be, you know, economic or political or spiritual or Freudian or, or um, constitutional. You described the tension between ideals and institutions so beautifully. Does the Constitution itself provide a unifying, inspiring ideal that brings us together throughout the battle? And in what ways does the equal protection guarantees do that? 
Well, I think that we're in the process of seeing whether we can do that, and we know that the you know the the best ideals uh, are not always exactly that we can express on paper aren't there. And while this isn't the Constitution, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equals. You know, the beginning of one of the greatest sentences ever written in the English language. And yet the guy who wrote that sentence owned more than 100 human beings. And so we've got to always understand the complexity that lies between it. But of course, equal protection has to be at the heart. And this is where the 14th Amendment takes on its centrality in our lives, whether we are, whether we know it or not. Um, it is operating on it. It has a kind of electromagnetic force field in our lives that is, is, is sort of irradiating almost everything that we think of. And I think our access to it has to come through story. From Emancipation to Exodus is an incredibly resonant title. Why Exodus? Well, I think what happens is that if you uh, take the moment that emancipation is bestowed by the Emancipation Proclamation, which we can also put an asterisk and let's say, of course, Lincoln freed no slaves in territory he controlled. He, in fact, let slavery remain in order to keep Kentucky and Maryland and parts of Louisiana and Virginia intact. Um, and only freed slaves in areas he didn't control militarily. So it has, a, a, you know, it, it was more a, a, a foreign policy thing to keep, to check Britain and France from coming in. But it does set in motion in the breasts of African Americans the idea that they have freedom. And it begins a, an amazing story. Um, that story, I believe, ends with that backroom deal in Florida, or the first third of it, the first movement of, uh, of a three-movement symphony when in early 1877, um, Rutherford B. Hayes is made president and not Samuel Tilton. And then you have a real period of, of out in the wilderness, which is from that moment when Jim Crow becomes the law of land and lynching and the KKK and white supremacy that, that reaches its apotheosis when that discrimination is enshrined into law with Plessy versus Ferguson. And then the final movement is one, I think, of uplift in which African Americans sort of having to deal with their circumstances in America have to to figure out how they're going to do it. Some, like Booker T. Washington, are going to urge some kind of accommodation. Others, like W.E.B. Du Bois, are going to be more fiercely independent. Some, like Marcus Garvey, are going to have sort of wild, far-fetched ideas of, of leaving the United States, of having you know a separate black state uh, in various places, some people suggest. And I think all of this culminates with a, just a, a deep realization that coincides with the end of the First World War. You know, there's a famous song that came out of that, of the GIs coming back saying, how can you keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's a, it was a popular song at the, at the time. I think the more important stuff for our story is, how can you keep them down in the South once they've tasted the idea of freedom? And what you see is the beginning of a multi-decade migration, what is called by historians the Great Migration, of African Americans out of the South looking to find work and safety for their children in the midst of the Jim Crow era, safety for themselves, um, all of the things that everyone wants um, in in uh, places that, that, as Langston Hughes put it, that we would go and seek the warmth of other suns. And I think this is as compelling a story uh, in the United States history as anything, and it gets at 
the heart of not only the 14th, but in some ways almost all of the various crux, the uh-ohs, the problems that have been built into our architecture since our inception. And that is our willingness, at least at the beginning, to tolerate, to make three-fifths of a person um, slaves uh, for the purposes of apportionment, but not extending them the universal freedoms that we are bragging to ourselves and to the world that we are uh, initiating. And that is, in some ways, the horns of the American dilemma. Wow. Is there a moment of redemption after the Great Migration and the Exodus coming out of the wilderness? Is it the I have a dream speech, or does that moment never occur? Well, I think it, it, you, you glance at it. It's, it's absolutely true, and I think you're, you're right to sort of not look at this in any kind of sentimental way, because, of course, you come north and find sometimes as stultifying a discrimination. Certainly, you know, there's, um, you know, things that happen with housing and with employment and with life that, that seems very uh, similar to what had been taking place in the South, um, perhaps maybe not as obviously so. Uh, but maybe the subtler uh, and and less uh, easily identifiable racism was more difficult for African-American families. But sticking out among it are these amazing moments of Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, making his way to first base on April 15, 1947. This is before Rosa Parks, this is before Brown versus Board of Education. This is before the military is integrated. This is before lunch counter disputes. This is a guy who's going to take it on his own shoulders. And then, of course, you have uh, people riffing off that. Um, you know, when, when Jackie went to first base that day in April 47, Martin Luther King was a junior at Morehouse College. So you begin to realize the extent to, to which Jackie becomes an inspirational figure that is going to help uh, the, the Rosa Parks and, and uh, others, to, uh, including Dr. King, uh, to be able to, to sort of, if not achieve in fact, at least give us an unassailable idea of what our horizon should be, how that rising road, where we should meet that rising road. And we're still working at it as imperfectly as we all are. That's a beautiful way to put it. If I, I'm going to try to sum up in a, in a long sentence the narrative of from emancipation to exodus, and then you'll do it much better. But is the story the one of how the equality promised by Jefferson in the Declaration was thwarted by the compromise of the Constitution, resurrected by Lincoln at Gettysburg, enshrined in the 14th Amendment, then thwarted again by the Compromise of 1876 and the Supreme Court resurrected again after the Great Migration by King, and we're continuing to struggle for it today. That's just a shot. But I, do it, do it better. I, I could not say it any better than that. No, no. Of and course you and what does Exodus lead you to? It supposedly leads you to the Promised Land, but it is just again promised, just as it is the pursuit of happiness. And I think we as Americans get distracted by the word happiness and forget it's the pursuit, and that we um, think of it as the promised land and not just the promise. And somehow we cannot take it for granted, and somehow these narratives, and not just that one, but many other extraordinary narratives, have to be blended together in an inclusive one that permits us to sort of see what we share in common, to sort of um, enjoin, as Lincoln said at his first uh, inaugural, the mystic chords of memory, so that we might stir the better angels of our nature. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, but your description is as good as any uh, for what I hope to achieve in that.
is is what happened to the promise of of the Constitution and uh, the Revolution and how it did not affect uh, African Americans, what the Civil War did, and then the extraordinary drama that is not separate. And I I, I just I know why uh, Black History Month is in February, but we put African American history into our shortest and coldest and darkest month, as if it's some politically correct addenda to our national narrative, and not as I believe the second Jefferson finished that second sentence of the Declaration, the heart of American history. And if you don't believe me, you just pick up a newspaper and find the NBA star who makes millions of dollars a year unable to just be at a store in the middle of the night without being arrested and tased, or driving while black, or as someone just said, breathing while black. Hmm. And if we're in you know, 2018 and these things are still going on, then we've got to go back to our history. We've got to go back to our Constitution and its amendments, and we've got to go back to ourselves and say, what's going on? And, and what does that history tell the kids who are wondering how someone can be thrown out of Starbucks just for being black. Is it a reassuring story of rights? Does it cast light? What, what, what's the constitutional answer to all of those indignities today? That the work is done. I, I, I think that we can neither describe it as positive or negative. It's just that, that our work is never done, and it requires a kind of constant uh, tinkering. Unfortunately, uh, just as in the pre-Civil War period, we've gotten to a space where uh, compromise in our language uh, and working together don't seem to be very productive. And, and that is something that is most worrisome and I think presents a kind of existential threat, not just to these specific problems of, say, race and um, you know, equal protection and other stuff, but the whole ball of wax, meaning us and our survival. We need to tell the story we've been discussing, not only this year, which is the 150th year, but uh, over the next uh, generation to inspire and teach people. The Constitution Center is trying to do it with podcasts like this, with panels and discussions with this exhibit. You're going to transform American understanding with your documentary. How else can we tell the story and in what forms can we tell the story so people understand this constitutional battle for equality? Well, I think we just need to be doing it, and it, we compete in a space of a great deal of distracting and soporific entertainment choices that make it easier. But um, everyone is going to, at some point, feel a sense of, I wish I knew a little bit more about how things work, what this operating manual is about. And what's so great about the Constitution Center is that you take what I still believe is the greatest operating manual on the planet and interpret it and make it exciting and set young minds on fire. And this is all of our jobs. We have to continue to tell the stories. We have to bring in as many people as we, po as we possibly can. We cannot take the easy side of partisanship and struggle instead to walk a mile in the other shoes and to try to see other perspectives and to um, try to show in very, very good faith to the other that for the most part we share the same objectives. We've just got different uh, perspectives from which we see uh, how they could be accomplished and to figure out in the great genius of what we do how we get those things done. 
the nonpartisanship part is so important, and I'm so inspired that conservatives are just as excited by as liberals by the constitutional history of the 14th Amendment, are celebrating the achievement of equality, and are just as committed to making it. Of course, of course. Uh, this is this is our shared heritage, and we have, you know, one thing that we have not going for us is we've removed civics <clears throat> from our teaching, and civics is the center of it all. Civics isn't just the Constitution is this many pages and has this many articles and this many amendments, and it's 100 senators and 435 representatives and an executive and, you know, a judicial branch, but... It's about how people get things done. And in a world of social media, which is not social media, but a social media, meaning you're not required to be with anybody, we've uh, permitted to let atrophy in our classrooms, the stuff of how you get things done, and then in our personal lives, the fact of how you're there. I have daughters who text one another from one room to the other, whereas human communication. I I live in a tiny New England town, and we spend a lot of time talking about and debating whether we're going to buy a new pumper for the fire department. And and if we can understand that civics is our own participation in the decisions that work for all of us, then these documents become much more sexy um, than anything else, and, and we're concerned about it. You can just see the way in which our young people after uh, Parkland and now Santa Fe in, in Texas are beginning to respond in ways to engage, to realize that something isn't right in their world and they that they, they can't complain about it and dive back into their social media. They have to actually engage in a way that they haven't done before and use muscles they haven't done before. And, of course, to the rest of us, uh, amaze us with their the vibrancy of their citizenship, which is all we want at the end of the day, is that every person feels an enormous set, uh, sense of pride for being able to say, I'm a citizen and not some sense that this is almost a joke from some anachronistic textbook, because it ain't. Ken Burns, it's just, it's so exciting to talk to you, to hear your excitement, and especially oh, it's your, been my your, pleasure, Jeff. Thank your, you. your passion for the Constitution and your commitment to educating Americans and exciting them about this shared history is a form of spreading the light that has demonstrably and measurably improved America, and it's just wonderful to share your passion. Thank you so much for Well, you are so, that is so generous and grateful. I'm going to allow that to sink in for about two minutes, and then I'm going to go back to work on these stories. (laughs) Really look forward to it and to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Ugana Etse and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. And a special thank you to NPR Studios in Washington for letting us record with them. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, enthusiasm, and engagement of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate and committed to using their moments of leisure to educate themselves, I mean yourselves, we the people listeners, about the U.S. Constitution. Thank you so much for taking the time to devote yourself to self-education. And please consider becoming a member of the National Constitution Center to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.